not merely in hours or days or centuries, but we have light years. I don't know whether you can understand them. As far as I remember at school, light went round the earth eight times in a second. So if a thing so many light years away, oh, it's beyond all computation as to how far it is, isn't it? They tell you that that star that you can see shining in the sky, sky just now may have been blown to smithereens millions of years ago and all that time the light's been still travelling and it'll go on perhaps for me. It's peculiar to the epistle to the Ephesians because you can find the word heavenly in Matthew and John and in Corinthians and in Hebrews and if you can find it scattered all through the New Testament like that, how can you possibly say in the self-same breath that it belongs only to the epistle to the Ephesians. Well, you see, the nearer uh, a statement is to the truth and not quite true, the more dangerous it is, isn't it? We have never said that the word heavenly is peculiar to Ephesians. What we have said is the phrase in the heavenly places, en tois eperaniois. And those terms occur five times in the New Testament, and every one of them are in the epistle to the Ephesians. So that you see, it's not good enough merely to turn to Matthew and say the word means our Heavenly Father. It's not good enough to turn to John. It's not good enough to turn to Corinthians when it speaks about a heavenly body. Oh, that's all right, we know that. But we are still saying that there is only one book in the whole Bible that speaks about a sphere called heavenly places. The next thing is, and it's a legitimate objection, there is no word for place. You see, the word place is the Greek word topos, where we got our topography and so on. So once again we're back. Well, it's heavenly something, isn't it? Now, I suppose you do know that W-H-E-R-E, where, at least in the Greek New Testament, is an adverb of place. An adverb of place. So, when the Apostle wrote to the Colossians and said, set your affection on things above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God, without limiting ourselves to saying that heaven is just above us, because it must be above the Australians as well, if you can have it that way. We we know that well enough. But it is where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. So again, you see, whether we say heavenly places, heavenly spheres, heavenly... We've still got to come back to the fact that this expression occurs here and here only. And so... When we look at the epistle to the Ephesians, we find that the blessings are peculiar because nowhere else in the whole word of God are blessings called spiritual, although you may think so. It's not what we think, it's what's written. Nowhere else do we find a company chosen before the foundation of the world. Nowhere else but there. And nowhere else do we have a sphere of blessing where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Well, now let's turn, shall we? to Ephesians, and notice the occurrences. Oh, before we do that, I'll refer to one passage which I've touched upon in passing without quoting. John the third chapter. Now you say, what's John the third chapter got to do with Ephesians? Well, there is a statement there which we do well to ponder. 
Verse 12. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how are you going to believe if I should tell you heavenly things? It doesn't say I am telling you heavenly things. But if you will not even believe the first rung of the ladder, how are you going to get to the top one? But it does show you that when John wrote his gospel, it was possible for him to remind his readers that although they begin with John 3.16, that God so loved the world, a door has been opened in the purpose of God that made it possible for a person who simply believed Christ as their saviour to go on and believe that he was the head over the church and that they were members of the body. Nothing to stop them. Although it doesn't teach it here. That's all right. But still, this is not the word heavenly places. This is still true that the expression occurs only in the epistle to the Ephesians. Well, I think perhaps we better look at those five statements first, just to get them before us, and then see what comes out of it. Ephesians chapter 1, we've quoted it, but we'll give it its context. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. For the moment, it doesn't matter to us whether he wrote to the saints at Ephesus or whether they were written to anybody who cared to get the epistle. I mean, there's a rare hullabaloo because in some manuscripts there's a gap left. And you'd think that anybody with any common sense would say, no epistle could be written to the saints which are. That's what they try to make out. This, this, the apostle said, when you read this epistle, then you read the one that Laodicea and the Laodiceans read you, yours when he wrote to the Colossians. It was, a, it was one that could be circulated among these believers. So, as copies were multiplied, so they left it open. And then you wrote in, what well, we do to this very day. If some of you receive a postcard telling you the date of the women's meeting, you will see that the postcard has got dotted lines so that it can be written in. But it doesn't mean to say you're invited to come to a dotted line or a dotted meeting, you see. So we won't bother about that. If, if anybody wants to go into it sometime or another with all the manuscript evidence, if it's worth it, we might do it. But we're coming to this first statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice? It doesn't say, oh, bless me. It says, oh, bless God. So we are, we are getting our voice in that hallelujah chorus of Psalm 148. Of course, the sun and the moon, they have a different way of praising him than intelligent, reasonable beings. But we have a something to say too in this mighty orchestra. Blessed be God who hath blessed us. And it says these blessings are all spiritual. And as we said before, that's not a common expression, even though you might think so. And you might say that Abraham was a spiritually minded man, and David was a spiritually minded man. They may have been. But if you keep to the language of Scripture, you'll find the word spiritual occurs only once in the whole range of Old Testament teaching. Now, I didn't, I forgot to put it down. It's because it didn't obtain. It has a special meaning. The only occurrence of the word spiritual is 
The spiritual man is mad. And if you want to take that to to yourself, I won't object. That's all it says. So it doesn't occur at all, you see, in our meaning. So God means what he says. He said to the children of Israel, if you keep my commandments and obey this covenant, I will bless you in basket and in store. I will make your land fruitful. Your cattle shall not perish, and so on. Well, you're not going to sniff at that if you're going to have an earthly inheritance. What's the good of spiritual blessings with a farm? You see, it's all right. But there came a moment when God lifted and spoke about a heavenly position. A place where Christ sits at the right hand of God. And he'd forgotten, if he'd forgotten to make our blessings all spiritual, well, we'd never get there, and if we did, we couldn't stop there. So it's all right. Blessed. Then it's not merely all spiritual blessings. The literal rendering is, blessed us with every blessing that is spiritual. Now, if you know how many there are, you know how many blessings there are, but, oh dear, how are we going to get this? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with every blessing that is spiritual because our inheritance is spiritual and we have to have ourselves made all sufficient for the inheritance of the saints in light. Now he comes to the next statement. In heavenly places and then the one thing that matters most, in Christ. For if they're not in Christ, they'll be neither spiritual nor in heavenly places. So now we've got in the heavenlies, the places out of your wish. Well, you say to me, well, where are these heavenly places? What are they like? Well, I say, I know more, know more than you do. Well, what are you doing up there? Oh, I'm only opening the book. If this book tells me anything about where they are, I'll point it out to you. But where it stops, I must stop. So will you look at the end of this same chapter and see the next occurrence of these heavenly places? I think it wouldn't do us any harm to see the prayer that leads up to this. He says, I pray for you, verse 17, that the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, which might better read that you'll get a wise and revealing spirit in the acknowledgement of him. That's how it comes. Then shall you know, as you go on to know the Lord, you see, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that has to be taken for granted, otherwise you want to go back to the beginning, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who to believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So I do know where heavenly places are. At least, I know this, they're at the right hand of God. And I'm sure the right hand of God is somewhere not located on the earth. We see that presently uh, uh, abundantly, but here it is. So these heavenly places are at the right hand of God. But then it says something further. And it's far above all, not some, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And then because there's so much to say, he says that every name that is named, not only in this age or world, but also in that which is to come. So there's nothing left out. And has put all things under his feet 
So he thought above all, and if you don't believe that, that all things are under his feet. That's heavenly places. Well, the objector may say, oh, well, that's where Christ is. But he says to me, he said, but you're telling me that that's where you're going to be. And you object to that. Oh, I do, most certainly. There has been in this chapel a believer, a genuine believer, who accused me of blasphemy because I quoted Ephesians 2, verse 6. Difficult to be accused of blasphemy from quoting the scriptures, isn't it? But he would not tolerate the idea that anybody could possibly be reckoned to be seated together with Christ. He wouldn't have it. But we are not made of that. We say, if God has said so, even though it's a staggering thing, we must accept it, mustn't we? So shall we look. It says in verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, that quickened us together with Christ. Then he slips in and hallelujah, as it were, before he goes on, he stops himself, he says, by grace you are saved. And hath raised us up together. Now that's true of the Roman epistle. But here's an additional bit, found nowhere else. Nowhere else do you get this expression. They're no seated together in Romans. But now it says, that's the one thing more. And have made us sit together. You might have wondered if we were permitted to stand in that heavenly place. But he says, no, sit together. Where Christ sitteth, at the right hand of God, in those heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. So where Christ is, is the goal to which we press. All the idea of being unworthy of it is beside the mark. We're unworthy of any of it. We're equally unworthy to be blessed in the paradise of God on earth. So if God offers us something better, we might as well take the best of the worst because we're not worthy of either of them. So we've got now. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Those heavenly places are where Christ was raised from the dead and ascended far above all principality. And we are reckoned to be seated together with him and one day we're going to be there for what God reckons now to our faith will be realised to our hope. Well, the next statement is in chapter 3. When the apostle, as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles, made known that to him had been entrusted a new dispensation called the dispensation of the mystery, that is if you're reading the revised version, he says in verse um, 8, unto me, and when the apostle has to emphasise himself, he continually follows it with me. I don't think I'm boasting. Don't think I'm praising myself. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. Yet I'm not one bit behind any of them. You see, two sides. He said, I magnify my office even though I've been it all myself. You can understand him, can't you? He says, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, well, now, if you believe what it says there, you won't find those riches in the Old Testament. You won't find them in the Gospel according to Matthew. They're unsearchable. They're only now being made known. These are riches that have never been revealed. And our version says to make all men see. It's the same word which gives us the word in verse, which we read just now, verse 18 of chapter 1, 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Photizo, the word to, which gives us the word photography and so on. That, that I should enlighten all. Well, if that's true, it's no use going to Peter to discover this blessing. It's no good going to John to discover it. He says it was entrusted to me as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. So we stress the prison ministry of the Apostle Paul. And to enlighten all, as to, now our version says, as to what is the fellowship. Now once again, there are more valuable manuscripts used today than ever the authorised version people saw or knew. They go back earlier and they are more attested. And there's a little change necessary. You can quite understand that a slave who copied these manuscripts could get tired. Why, even today, if you gave anybody a, a book like Ephesians to write out by hand, I'm morally certain that when you went through it, you'd find they made some mistakes somewhere or the other. Would you believe it? Even I make mistakes when I quote the scriptures and I look at the manuscript when it comes back, I think, oh, fancy me saying that, you see? Just a slip of the mind. Well, the word fellowship begins with the letters K-O-I. And the word dispensation begins with the letters O-I-K. And there you've got it. Koinonia instead of oikonomia, you see? So the word should be reading, and to make all men see or enlighten all as to what is the dispensation of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now is something more coming in, that now unto the principalities and powers, not to angels, you see. In Peter's ministry, all Peter says, angels desire to look into these things. But Paul doesn't speak about angels. The only place he speaks about angels in the positive sense is in the epistle to the Hebrews, written to the Hebrews. But not to you and to me. You cannot divorce angels from the people of Israel. Right from the call of Abraham, right up through the Old Testament, right into the Gospels, right into the Acts of the Apostles, angels minister. And so they do in the Hebrews, and so they do in Re Revelation. But no angels for you and me. I don't know whether it can upset you tonight the four corners to your bed, you know, and angels all round, but we've got something more. Do you know what we've got? We've got Christ himself, independent of angels, principalities and power. So he says, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places. So they're there. Principalities and powers in heavenly places should be known by the church, might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Now the last reference comes in chapter 6. He says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He's picking up the words that are found in chapter 1. Just lift back to chapter 1, will you? Verse 20. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And in verse 10, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who do believe according to the working of his mighty power? Now he's got all those words back again in chapter 10. They're all going to be put into work, into operation. 
Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. The same expression. Now here's a problem. If Christ is raised far above all principality and power, and if where Christ sitteth is the very right hand of God, according to this, these wicked powers, which are still actively engaged against, are all up there. Well, let's see, so that sounds odd, because if, they're, if he's far above them all, and this is the holy place where Christ sits, are these wicked beings up there? Would you say it says so? Well, let's wait a moment. Will you turn to a parallel construction in the epistle of Peter? And this is often appealed to. This is Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. This is often appealed to by those who do not believe the personal return of our Saviour. You know, there are some lines of teaching which say, Christ is not going to come back again in person. Every time a person is converted at a meeting and Christ enters his heart, the kingdom of God is gradually being built up and when they're all converted and all blessed, Christ will have come. And you say, where did you get that from? Oh, he says, it's written in Second Peter chapter 1, 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Well, the day star is Christ. He's the subject of prophecy. It says, he speaks in this very chapter about making known the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 16, we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's speaking about the coming of the Lord, and it's going to be in your hearts. But what do you do about that? Well, you see, you can do with a Greek sentence what you couldn't do with an English one, because so far as we are concerned, we've rubbed off all the endings, or nearly all the endings of our words, so that we've got to put them in their exact order, otherwise we make nonsense. If you were to take an English sentence and throw it up in the air, you couldn't put it together again with certainty. You wouldn't know whether it was John who hit Jim, or whether it was Jim who hit John, because there's no distinction. But if you did that with a Greek sentence, you'd know, because John would have an ending that showed him he was the nominative, and Jim would have an ending that showed him he was in the accusative or the dative or whatnot, see? So if you've got a, a language like that that's got its endings that show you where you are, you can sometimes shift a bit of the end to give it distinction. So shall we have a look at it again, this verse? We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that ye take heed in your hearts, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise. The day star doesn't arise in your hearts. You take heed. And he waits a minute to get the end. In your hearts, and puts the other bit in the middle. We couldn't speak like that quite so well in our language. Let's come back to Ephesians and have another look. 
For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Neither do we wrestle in heavenly places. You notice that? That's the idea. There's no wrestling against flesh and blood down here. And there's no wrestling with heavenly, in heavenly places up there. These principalities and powers are limited to the darkness of this world. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickednesses. So, I put it, as you see on this chart, at the fourth line from the top. We wrestle not with flesh and blood in the heavenly places. No, no. But we do wrestle with principalities and powers down here. Well, now the next thing is for us to consider the way in which this expression must be understood. We come back to the book of the Psalms for a moment. Psalm 148. We read that just now, you remember? And I dare say you observed what it said. Psalm 148, verse 4. Praise him, ye heavens of heavens. Ye heavens of heavens. Well, what does that mean? Heavens of heavens. Perhaps you better look somewhere else. Let's go back to Second Chronicles. Chapter 2, where Solomon is dedicating the temple. Second Chronicles, chapter 2. And there he says these words, verse 6. And who is able to build in a house, seeing the heaven, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? So according to, to the Old Testament, Solomon knew that there was the heaven above him, but there were the heavens of heavens which were above those. And in the sixth chapter, he repeats himself. So there was a time for him to be corrected if he'd made a mistake. The 18th verse. Chapter 6, 18. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold the heaven, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. Then you get in the epistle to the Hebrews, it speaks about our Saviour having passed into the heavens. But the word dire doesn't mean into. The word dire means through. And it says in that passage that he's passed through the heavens. And he's above all heavens. So we're getting a consistent statement in the scriptures that while Solomon had no idea that any believer would ever be translated to the heavens of heavens, he knew they were they. And the one who wrote Psalm 148 spoke about the heavens and the heavens that were above. So Paul was perfectly right to tell us that that sphere had now been opened which had been shut before. So that there will be those blessed with Abraham Isaac, Jacob, who shall inherit the earth. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't tell a single one of them they're going to heaven. I'm amazed at some people, they speak about the Sermon on the Mount as the quintessence of Christianity. 
And it doesn't mention the cross of Christ, it doesn't mention redemption, it doesn't mention faith in his anything. And it says the meek shall inherit the earth. And you say that means you. And you're going to heaven, yes. And you, you're a reasonable person, yes. Well, I don't think you are. But if you're going to inherit the earth and you're going to heaven, you'll have to straddle a bit, won't you? Don't you see? God means what he says. There will be some who will be blessed in the paradise of God on the earth. There will be some who will walk the streets of the holy city. And there will be some who will be so blessed beyond the dreams of man who will be seated together with Christ where he sits at the right hand of God. Now you do know that in Genesis 1 there's a distinction made between the heaven that was there originally Shall we turn to the first chapter just to see for ourselves, although it may be common knowledge to us, we want to remember those who will be joining in this meeting presently, who will be glad to have a word, I hope so. And if they know all about it, well they sit back and thank God they do, that's so we're all right, you see. Genesis 1, in the beginning, that's not a date, there's no almanac here, no diary kept here, this is before any computation of time is possible. We don't know when. As our science advances, and as astronomy advances, so the beginning retires. We have to 